morning, everybody. We're jumping back in the Word. You know how this works. Grab your Bible. Love for you to have the actual book, but if not, that's fine. Scroll or page down or swipe, whatever it is that you're doing, but get your Bible handy. We're about to jump right back into 2 Corinthians 11. Been working our way through it. So uh, be finished with 2 Corinthians pretty soon. I've loved this book. Josh and I both talked several times about how much fun it's been to study this. But anyway... Again, a quick reminder, this is not church. This is me unpacking the word. Tonight we'll have church. Love for you to come be part of that. We're in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, you can hit us up online through social media, through website, through email, any way you want to, and we'll tell you how to find us. We would love for you to come hang out with us and uh, just spend some time in prayer and getting into the word having a little bit of food, all that kind of stuff. Tonight, again, quick reminder, just before the service, we'll have a, uh, a little business meeting just kind of talking about the state of the church, where we are and where we're headed. And if you're part of the church and want to come, we'd love for you to do that. And then uh, during our regular time, we'll be doing an upper room. That's what we call the Lord's Supper. It's a, it's a pretty cool experience. If you've not been part of it, I can only tell you that you should come because it's a really kind of cool thing to do and, and everybody enjoys it, myself included, of course. So, but right now we're continuing this cross-shaped life thing, and um, I want to I want to push forward. But uh, let me back up just really quick to tell you the theme again: First Corinthians two two. For I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So today, as we move on, we're going to look at when the shepherds are wolves. Now. I realize that there's some implication to pastors there for real, and being one, I will admit this is one of those passages that that gives me some pause for sure, but this is bigger than just pastors, Um, and you'll see that when we get into it, but when the shepherds are wolves, and I I don't know if you've ever, for instance, been part of a cult, maybe you have, I mean, I don't don't mean to laugh, maybe you have, maybe that's a big serious part of your past. Maybe you found yourself drawn into something you realize now was and still is unbiblical. I, you know, I don't know if maybe you've been hurt by somebody who is a spiritual leader in your life. I know I have. Um, I know those things happen. And though I would love to say that the wolves are unfairly taking advantage of you, the truth is that too often we lay ourselves at their feet. Just being honest, we're attracted to their deception and we just lay ourselves at their feet. So let's look at what Paul's saying here. Second Corinthians chapter 11. You know how we'll do this. I'll read chapter, or I'll read chapter. Not the whole chapter. No. I'll read verse 12. Uh, here are a few verses and then we'll take on a, a, a bigger chunk. But verse 12. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. Man, Paul, this is some heavy talk. Let me uh, pray. Lord, thank you for your word. As always, Father, I repeat this uh, nearly every time I open it and open my mouth at the same time. That, Lord, I want it to be your word, not mine. Though my mouth is open, I want your word spoken because I learn from you. 
And I'm here to be that, uh, a learner, not, not, uh, the teacher. I might be speaking, but you're the teacher, Lord. You're the teacher. It's your word, not mine. Pray that would remain true and that you be glorified by what's said. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, if you know, uh, the old story of Little Red Riding Hood, I'm not going to go tell it to you. If you don't know it, then you need to go look it up. But but you probably do. And when I was a kid and used to look at that story, I used to always think, even as a kid, I used to think, think you know, how does she not realize that that's a wolf laying there? You know what I'm saying? You look at the the old books. I don't care what which one you want to pick. But when you look at that story and there's uh, the wolf laying where Grandma was and Riding Hood and, and Reds come in there. Uh, what big eyes you have, what big nose, what big teeth. You know what I mean? Like, all, you know, how does she not know that's an animal? I know she's wearing, I know he's wearing grand, grandma's clothes and laying in grandma's bed, but come on, Red. You know, how do you not know that that's an animal? Well, like Red's physical eyes, our spiritual eyes too often are blind in the same way. Blind in the same way. We're distracted by what looks familiar, by what looks inviting. So we overlook concerns we may have and we embrace some lies because of the things we recognize that make us comfortable. We'll look past some things that might concern us. But grandma's already been eaten and now the wolf is looking at you. And we need to keep that in our mind. And so as we look at this, consider that, that you'll see this in the text, but we're created for a purpose. We, we have a purpose as believers, but deception is all around us. And whether we turn to the deception or not, the truth will always remain true and reality will always be revealed at some point. But it's up to us how we're going to respond and whether it will be too late when we do. All right, that's where we're going today. So outline here basically just a, a path of recognizing the enemy's deception here. We have our purpose there, the enemy's deception, our truth, and their reality. You'll see it as we walk through. So our purpose here, first of all, Second Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Paul's having to defend himself here, and he considers it foolish. He's being sarcastic in his language, very sarcastic in a lot of what he says here. He's like he's saying, it's stupid that I have to make this point clear yet again, but since you can't seem to get it, you're going to hear it again, so bear with me. You know, verse 2, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you uh, to one husband. He's kind of pretending as though he were a father that had given this church to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, that husband being Christ. So there you go, pure virgin. So Paul says their purpose was purity here. And his purpose as their shepherd, father figure, whatever you want to call it, was to make sure they were presented to God in that way, presented to Christ like that. that, that that's the primary job of a pastor. Primary job of a pastor, right there, uh, to present the church in purity. But the pastor or not here, believers, our desire should be the same to seek purity, to be pure. And when we make disciples, whether you're a pastor or not, we're all called to do that. We should feel the same burden as Paul does to present disciples who are pure to God. And Paul says he's jealous for them, not simply uh 
you know, worried. He's jealous. You know, there's a jealousy in there. Isn't that a sin? Well, not in every case. He's saying godly jealousy. What is that? Well, God himself said, I am a jealous God multiple times. The, 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 the point there is not sin, obviously. It's God. The point there is he's jealous for the person. It's the desire for the love of another, particularly one who has pledged it already, and it's well-deserved anyway. That, 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 that's a godly jealousy. There was a movie in the 90s, back around 92, 93, called Indecent Proposal. Not recommending it at all, but the premise of the movie was a, a man, very rich man, suggesting to buy another man's wife for the night. And because of the vast amount of money, they all come to an agreement that it's only one night and they do that. But as soon as she leaves with the other man, the husband becomes crazy jealous, crazy jealous. Suddenly an agreement doesn't seem like it's strong enough to take away his wife. Suddenly the money, no matter how much, it's not enough to buy her away, even for one night. Is that wrong? Is it wrong for a husband to be jealous? Listen to me. Is it wrong for a husband to be jealous of his wife, especially if she's got her hands all over another man? Or what if she's sexually involved with another man? Does he not have a right to be jealous? Of course he does. He should be. Sinful jealousy is being envious of others because of their position or their accomplishments or their status or, or whatnot. But Paul's intent here is that their hearts are aligned with love for Jesus only. Love for him only. And that they're not drawn to others who represent Christ but are not. That, they, that they're pure before Christ. He's the one that Paul betrothed them to. Paul's kind of acting, as I said, like the father when he's offered them to Christ. And he's staking his word as father of the daughter that she is undefiled, that she's not been with another man, that she is a pure virgin in that sense when he presents her to her husband. That's the language he's using. So I ask myself, I ask you, who or what is it in our lives now that provokes God to jealousy? Righteous jealousy. Who, who or what is it that's in our lives right now that provokes God to jealousy? So our purpose is purity. The deception here. Look what the deception is here. It says verse 3. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. But if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit, from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel, see Jesus' spirit gospel right there, from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Their deception was in offering the Corinthians things that were very similar, but not genuine. Look how close they are. They're, they're, they're the things, right? The spirit, Jesus, the gospel, right? They're, they're similar, but they're not genuine. And we as sheep, man... My goodness, we tend to be drawn so easily to that type of deception. Does it matter who you listen to if they say Jesus? Does it matter? Do the, do the little details really matter? Or is it just okay to say, hey, look, God loves you. He's got a plan for you. Is that good enough? Does it matter um, that we talk about 
deacons and elders, or should we just tell the whole world Jesus saves and that's the end of it? Does it matter that we talk about adultery and fornication, or should we just stick with judge not and let the sinless cast the first stone? How can you trust if they all say the similar things? If they're all saying Jesus, how do you know? If they're all claiming to be apostles of Christ, how do you know? Well, how did the deception happen? He mentioned it right here. Like Eve with the serpent. Well, go back to Genesis uh, chapter 3. You can read all up on it. I'm not going to go back there now. You can look in your own time if you don't know. But the serpent, which was Satan, said... Oh, man, isn't this good? Looking at the fruit. Isn't it good? Look at it. Judge for yourself. What do you think? You be the judge. What do you think? Isn't it good? God's lying. God's lying. Did he really say? Did God really say? You know, he's keeping from you. He's keeping from you. Look at it. Doesn't it look nice? You're smarter than that, Eve. Judge for yourself. What's the serpent really questioning there? What's he really questioning? God's word. God's word. Did God really say? In fact, he, he does it so craftily that he even gets Eve to add a word or two in when she responds. She's like, you know, God told us not to uh touch it in fact not even to look at it which is not true but he's made her already consider god in a more restrictive way in a more overbearing way so what's the solution hey look know his word know it recite it all of it like that's the importance of memorizing scripture because you have to catch every little word and you need to memorize every little word because each word matters and then you trust it as god's word it is what god said as it is not in ways that look better even when other things sound good or sound holy sound humanitarian they sound real loving they seem practical they're popular they're religious they make more sense even in some ways. But even changing a single letter, listen to me, even changing a single letter, no matter how pleasing it may appear, no matter how well it might make things fit, changing a single letter comes with death. There's a, I won't take the time, but there's a, an A Alphabetical letter A is only one little change made by the Jehovah's Witness in their text and in their translation of John chapter 1. And that one little A changes the entire identity of Christ. It matters, okay? It matters. It's always been God's word that Satan's focused on. It's been that way from the start. Uh, right, right there with Eve all the way through. In fact, it was the word that God, that, uh, Satan addressed with the word. When Jesus, who was the word made flesh, was being tempted by him, he used the word to tempt the word. It's always been about that. Satan's temptation was less about trying to get Jesus to kneel, I think, less about trying to get Jesus to kneel and more about Jesus breaking his own word. And showing himself to be untrustworthy. Showing his character as 
flawed or failed and then becoming no greater than Satan. Paul's concern here is that that this twist of the word, this twist of of uh, you know apostleship, whatever, that Paul's concern is that they're going to lose a sincere love for Jesus. That's what he says. He's afraid they're going to lose a sincere love for Jesus. How many times have we found ourselves in this same position? Can Jesus really love me like I am right now? Can he really love me just the way I am? That's the way it starts. Can he really love me just the way I am? And then we start to think, well, he'll love me if I'm obedient. So I need to keep the Sabbath. Surely, I, you know, I'm supposed to keep the Sabbath. That's why I'm going to keep the Sabbath. Well, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to keep the other commandments too. I got to keep the 10. Well, there's 613. Now, let me get working on that. I mean, I know he loves me, but he'll love me if I keep the commandments. Uh, surely I got to give money. Surely I got to give all my money. I need to give all of it. Giving some of it's not enough. I got to give all. Surely I'm lost if I'm thinking this. That thought in my head, how can I be a believer and think that? I must be lost. He can't love me. We forget he first loved us. We forget that. And when we forget that he first loved us, we start to let our love for him fade and and pass away a little bit. And then we start thinking that he might not be enough. He might not be enough. He, he might not be able. It may take more than that. You know, Paul calls this seeking a better Jesus. That's what he's talking about. If someone comes proclaiming a better, that's what he said. That someone would be a wolf as a shepherd. Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul said this to the Ephesians. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Look, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Why would that? Why would they do that? What, what could be better? Why would we do it? What could be, po- what possibly could be better? Than the gospel of grace, than the only begotten perfect son of the father, sinless, sinless, holy, made himself a ransom for the sins of man. What could be better than that? While we were yet sinners, that's better than that. While we were yet sinners, he gave himself for us. What could be better than that? With that he provides salvation through that. Salvation and freedom from sin. He who knew no sin became sin. That we become the righteousness of God. We are given God's righteousness. And by faith we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Who becomes a, a comforter, a counselor to us. And a guarantee of our salvation. And our inheritance as children of God. What's better than that? What in all creation would make us seek a better Jesus, a better spirit, a better gospel? But we do, don't we? We feel the need to play a role in it. We, we feel a need to have some control over even our own salvation. Or, or we feel like it's got to be on our terms, like... We want freedom from sin, but only the sins that we're finished with. Only the ones we're really sick about. You know? Or, or maybe only the ones that, that we want to hang over here until one day we might think about revisiting them again. 
Paul's not calling these guys lost. Look what he said. They heard the proclamation of Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit. They accepted the gospel. His problem is that they're just as ready to accept the alternatives. They're not satisfied in it. They're, you know, there's a lot of faiths out there. There's a lot of faiths today that claim to be Christian. A lot that claim to be Christian. And preaching Jesus and the gospel is part of their faith. And that's why they claim to be Christian, at least on paper anyway. But the real question is, who is the Jesus that they preach? What is the gospel that they proclaim? I'm not going to break them all down. You can look them up in your own town. Jehovah's Witness, Mormons both have a distorted view, an unbiblical view of who Jesus really is to to the point that they have their own texts. Uh... There's others, I'm not going to go down them all, even some branches of Catholicism. There, there's cults of all kinds that, that they pull Jesus in, but it's not Jesus. They pull a gospel in, but it's not the gospel. Paul goes on, he says, there's there's one purpose for us, and that's purity. The Their deception is this imitation. And then there's our truth. Look in verse 5, he says, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. I feel like he would be doing the whole quotation thing with his fingers. as super apostles. Definitely sarcastic. Verse 6. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, which obviously he's admitting that in some level, I'm not so in knowledge or understanding. He's saying, I know what I'm talking about. I understand the word. Indeed, in every way we've made this plain to you in all things. But he's basically saying there, you truly know that we know what we're talking about. You know we know what we're talking about. Verse 7, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself? (laughs) Sarcasm again. So that you might be exalted. Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. Like, should I have ripped you off? I I, I guess I should have charged you for my services. If they were really worth anything, I would have surely charged you for them. It's being sarcastic. Verse 8, I robbed other churches. Again, sarcasm. By accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Acacia, which is where they are. And he's basically saying, I'm going to boast on these churches uh, because... Look, why? He says, why? Why would I boast? Because I do not love you? No. God knows I do. Because I love you, he's saying. Um, Paul's truth here was sincerity. Paul's truth here is sincerity, and ours should be as well. The best way to combat false accusations, the best way to deal with lies, deception, false teaching, it begins in the way we live our lives. Every day, do our daily lives display that the truth is in us? Notice there's a clear tactic of the enemy here. And it's not in simply making these guys look, uh, uh, not making themselves look attractive. Like they are doing that, but it's not just in making themselves look attractive to believers here. But it's also in openly condemning and mocking those who do speak God's truth. And even in ways that are superficial here, 
Look at look at look. He, he's short. He can't speak clear. He's he's awkward. She's broke. She ain't got no money. Don't listen to her. What does she know about Jesus? She don't got no money. He stutters. She's overweight. She's a glutton. She, what, why would you listen to her? He doesn't have the same credentials as I, I do. He doesn't have the, he doesn't have the alphabet after his name like I do. She, she doesn't know as many people as we do. Believe me, we know more people and the people we know are more important than her. Look, who does she know? Uh, they got so few followers on Instagram. They're not even verified on Twitter. They don't have a check, you know. They don't get likes on Facebook. Nobody, you never see anybody quoting them on Facebook. You know, that's the kind of thing. And some say they're claiming that Paul was not really an apostle here because he was, wasn't one of the original twelve. But, isn't it funny that they, if that be the case, that they still expect their own authority to be recognized when none of them were with the original twelve either? It's funny, man. So often arguments seem to make uh, sense until you stop and take a step back and look and a lot of them are so full of holes but we get distracted because our focus is on the object of the one being pointed at and not the hand that's pointing but Paul's not one of the original 12 to be fair he wasn't he was however he did see Jesus because he was alive at the time period uh, he was there when it all happened he did know the other apostles he did know them he was chosen by God. He was discipled, likely, by Christ himself. And he did claim that his apostleship was unique in his timing because it came after the others. He did say that. But these guys are suggesting that he's just a rogue. He's a charlatan. You know, he's trying to rip off the Corinthians and take their money. Paul's not having it, man. Paul's not having it. His stand is not for self-glory, but it's based on guarding this church that he loves. He deeply loves them. He even says that he's going to go on bragging on them and the other churches there because he loves them. It's not going to stop. Paul easily stomped their argument here that he's seeking financial gain because he took nothing from them. While he was there. That's the whole point he's making. In fact, it, it was the support of the other churches that made it possible for him to be in Corinth. And that implies that the other churches endorsed Paul as well. Paul says he robbed other churches. That's obviously sarcasm. Basically, because it's likely that the false apostles were accusing him of that. While they were likely doing it themselves. And they were probably accusing him of trying to rob the Corinthians while they were robbing the Corinthians. And so he's saying, yep, I robbed other churches to come to you because I took nothing from you. But quick observations here, by the way, before we roll out of it. But Paul was some just notable things. Paul was paid and supported here to full-time ministry. He says so himself. He likely worked a job. He was a tent maker, yes. Probably intermixed that. He might have worked a little bit and he might have drawn in some income from these other churches. He might have lived solely on the churches at the time. He might have lived solely on the income at the time. Point being, it wouldn't have been wrong for him to even accept money if he wanted to from Corinth. That would not have been wrong. But they were a wealthy city. So it may be that because of that, that was, you know, aligning his reasoning why he didn't allow their money to play a role in sharing the gospel there. I don't know. But there are other churches that made sacrifice to support Paul's work among the Corinthians. Think about that. How humbling would that be for the wealthy that the poor are making it possible for you to, to, 
to be ministered to. And how, excuse me, how powerful that would be to the impoverished churches that they were able to support them in that ministry. One other point here to note that it joins churches to churches. I love that. It joins churches. Paul's joining churches to churches rather than exalting himself or any one man to a status as ruler of churches. He's connecting churches to churches. So our purpose is pure impurity. Their deception is in this imitation. Our truth is sincerity. And then last is their reality, which is satanic. Watch this, verse 12. And what I am doing, I will continue to do. He's not abandoning. I'm not abandoning my strategy. I'm not abandoning my strategy in the mission of planting churches. I'm not doing it. And he says, I will continue to do. uh, And what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission. So he's saying they're bragging about their mission too. But they would like to claim that the work they do uh, serves the same is on the same terms as the work we do. In other words, he's saying that I'll continue to boast about what we're doing because these guys who are boasting about what they're doing, they want to claim that it's the same work, and it's not. Part of Paul's strategy here is to continue boasting and highlighting his mission because he knows that the works speak for themselves and. What exactly are you suggesting in that, Paul? What are you, what are you trying to say? What are, you, what, what are you getting at? Just spit it out, Paul. Just say it. Well, that's what he does. Look at verse 13. For such men, let me just tell you, are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants, that word servants is diaconus, that's where we get the word deacons or ministers, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Their reality here is satanic. The fruit of their actions was evil because it was crafted by Satan. That's what he's saying. Regardless of how enlightened it appeared, and that reality would become evident when they find themselves in the same destination. Now pay attention here, by the way. There is a spiritual force at work. Satan is not a feeling. He's not an attitude. Uh, He is a real created being. And bad people are not always simply bad. There are many times when we encounter the forces of Satan at work in other people. And we need to be aware of this reality. We really do. We need to be aware of this reality. We, as followers of Christ, have a very real, powerful, spiritual enemy that is also very active against us. And we need to be aware of that. Satan is an angel. He's not pretending to be an angel. He is one. Demon is a term that is used in Greek some, but you rarely ever see it in the Hebrew context. There's only angels. Good angels or bad angels. That's it. And that's determined by their actions. Why do we think demons are creepy, slimy, scary, terrifying things and angels are beautiful and handsome? When by the Bible standards, there's only angels. Their context is determined by what they do. And even these men appear good. But they're polluting purity. They're lying and working lies to their advantage. They're controlling and they're destroying all while appearing wiser. While appearing purer. 
more honest, more eloquent, more informed, better looking, honestly. What does your sin level make you look like? Let me ask you that. What does your sin level make you look like on the outside? Do you know any beautiful people who live a very sinful lifestyle? Whether you know them or not, I guarantee you see people on TV. Beautiful people that live a sinful lifestyle. You know any ugly people who live a godly lifestyle? Ugly, call it what you want, that live a godly lifestyle. We shouldn't be surprised that Satan, an archangel, the Bible calls the first of creation, and in his original context, perfect in every way. It should be no surprise that he's attractive or appears righteous and as a source of light. That that means like enlightenment or direction or truth or, you know, as a light would draw things to it like bugs and whatever. But the light that draws in, it seems attractive. It seems like it, it's illuminating. In many ways, he's looking to mimic Christ. But the difference is one appears that way. As an angel of light, one appears that way, and the other is the light of the world. The other says, one appears, and one says, I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. Not appearing. These wolves here are transforming themselves, Paul says, with disguises. By contrast, a true believer is a new creation and being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, being conformed to the image of Christ, not transforming ourselves with mass. Oh, but, but, but they're so smart. They got the credentials. They speak so well. Man, they're attractive. They look like they were made for the stage. They seem like they were created for this very thing how can they be wrong they say jesus they say gospel how can they be wrong easy satan himself transforms what paul said satan himself transforms so it should be no shock he says that satan's ministers do (laughs) the deacons of the devil get your head around that one what do you When I say that, what do you picture in your mind? Deacons of the devil. Do you imagine vampires in priestly garments? Do you think of like scary gothic devil worshippers with pentagram tattoos all over themselves? Or or women in witchcraft running around naked in the woods with pagan symbols all over the place? Not a chance. That's not the case at all. These ministers of Satan very closely resemble the first apostles of Christ. They look like Peter. They look like John. Just as Satan appears as light, attractive, offering hope, having enlightenment, he appears all in that way. These men appear as having righteousness. They appear as being right with God, but both have the same destination. And their end reality will reveal the true path that they've been on. That's what Paul's saying here. So how do we know? How do we know? Well, we determine by two things. What do they say about Jesus? What do they say about Jesus? Who do they claim Jesus is? And how do they handle his word? What do they say about Jesus? How do they handle his word? That's that's as simple as it gets. Do they speak of the blood of Christ? Do they speak of the offensiveness of sin? Do they... Speak of the hopelessness of man apart from the work of Christ on the cross. Do they speak of the resurrection and the power of Jesus over death, sin, and Satan? Do they speak of those things? Do they stand on those things and those things alone? 
That's what matters. So how do we respond? What, what, what do we do with this exactly? Well, first of all, I'd say what prevents us from being deceived? That's something we really need to be thinking about. What prevents you, me, from being deceived by a super apostle, as Paul would have called him? Well, one thing, and one thing only, I would argue. One thing and one thing only. Know his word. Know his word. Not just being smart, not being logical, not being able to win an argument, not uh, being open to love and being a loving person by any definition, not being religious, not being faithful to church, not any of that, but being able to discern God's word, to see through the mask of the wolves, to see the teeth and the nose, to be able to see that. That comes from knowing his word. That's the only place you're going to get that. It protects you from being eaten by the enemy who is deceiving. And it keeps you from becoming a deceiver yourself. Just saying. So look, here's the reality. There's only one way, one truth, one life. And that's through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the only way. Through him alone, God offered no other way. God offered no other way. And man will never find another way. And why should he offer another way? There has never been a greater display of love and grace in all of history for God to love the world that he gave his only son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What better way than that? You either want Christ's love, listen to me, you either want Christ's love with all of your heart, all right, or you want to hold on to your sin and self-satisfaction. There is no in-between. There is no middle ground. There is no uh, alternative options. That's it. So I'm asking you, which one is it for you today? Which one is it for you today? Man, I hope you let go of sin and you reach for Christ. Tell him in your own words. Tell him, I need you. I want you. Take my sin. Give me your righteousness. I trust in your word. I trust in you, Jesus, and you alone. And hit us up and let us celebrate that with you and help you learn how to be a disciple of Christ. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It is amazing. Pray that you are glorified in all that has been said today. Look forward to tonight. God, thank you. In Christ's name, amen.